This is Bethan from Seeing Red in the UK, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You've got good taste in podcasts. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little bit more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you start in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. Let's get started. As I like to do with each episode... I want to take the time to thank those of you who have signed up to support California Dreaming on Patreon. Slowly but steady, we are inching closer to the goal that we set when we first started, and without your support, we wouldn't be able to continue moving forward creating all of the content that we're able to at the rate that we're creating it. I've been able to be afforded more and more time to devote to researching and writing each episode, which is what takes the most time. So I'd like to take the time to thank the following people for recently joining Patreon and supporting this thing we've got here. Angela K., Sandra C., Wendy H., Sasha S., Autumn I., Carolyn L., John C., and Morgan K. Again, I can't thank you all enough for all of the love and support of our little show. So, you know, there are some cases or... Maybe I should say some people, individuals who spent their lives working hard to achieve a certain measure of success in their lives, whether it's financial success or maybe they reached a pinnacle in their careers or they achieved a goal or reached an accomplishment that they had set for themselves. And then before they had any real time to sit back and appreciate the fruits of their labors, Something tragic or sad happens that cuts their life short too soon. It's happened to several victims that we've talked about over the course of this show. For example, in episode three, we talked about the tragic shooting death of Phil Hartman, committed by his wife, who later turned the gun on herself. Phil had already reached the pinnacle of his career, a successful run on SNL, branched off into his own sitcom. He had voiceover work. He was working on movies, only to be taken out by his wife. Or in episode four, the shooting death of Gianni Versace and the other victims as well in the case, but Gianni Versace most notably. A man who spent his life rising to the top of the fashion design world becoming one of the most successful and most well-known designers, only to be cut down outside of his Miami home by killer Andrew Kananen, just wanting to enjoy his morning coffee and his newspaper. Or in episode 14, 
the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks committed by Skylar DeLeon. They worked their entire lives to reach retirement. They bought their boat, and they were living out their dream to sail the world. And when they were ready to finally settle back down on dry land and to be close to their new grandbaby, they were murdered by an opportunist who took advantage of their trusting natures. Or how about the McStay family? The trial for their killer, or alleged killer, is going on as we speak. So I'm certain more details will be coming out soon, but Joseph McStay was just seeing his business, by all accounts, develop into something successful. He was a father of two young boys, raising his family, only to have all four of them wiped out, allegedly by business partner Chase Merritt. I know there are some of you in the group following the case, and we'll probably do an update as soon as it's over. We told a story in the vacation series out of Ohio, The Disappearance of Patty Atkins, and that's a story that has long bothered me because there has been a clear suspect or at least a person of interest all this time. But the case remains unsolved. She too had found herself at a good place in life, moving up at her job at the Honda plant where she had worked pretty much since the time she had graduated from high school raising her beautiful daughter, loving family, and thinking that she was embarking on a brand new relationship. And then she vanished, at the hands of who many think was her love interest, a married co-worker. I'm still hoping that that case gets solved sometime in the near future. Oh, and how about Lacey's story? I know we didn't go through the entire case on our show, but we talked about her and how much she was looking forward to having her first child, only to be murdered by her husband eight months into our pregnancy. I don't even want to get started on all the children that we've talked about who fell victim to cold-blooded murderers, children who never even had the chance to reach their potential. I mean, every victim, every person lost, Everyone whose life came to an abrupt end had something to look forward to. And today's story is certainly no exception. In today's 75th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of William McLaughlin. William, or Bill McLaughlin, he was a very wealthy man. He was kind of a genius, an inventor. He was born and raised in the south side of Chicago, and his beginnings were described as very humbled. And when he went to college, he would be the first one in his family to do so, and his course of study involved biological engineering. His brother Patrick would describe him, even from a very young age, as a self-made man, and he was destined for greatness, destined to make a difference in the world. His studies would take him into the medical supplies business. He was a salesperson. But he also changed the landscape of the industry with his innovativeness and his groundbreaking work. Even though he was a salesperson, his mind and his way of thinking and seeing things always had him wondering how to improve the things that he was selling, how to change them for the better. And he did indeed have a tremendous impact on the industry. 
And all of this ingenuity began with him tinkering around in his own garage at home, where he lived in Orange County. Newport Beach will end up being the backdrop of our story. We've been to Orange County a lot recently, it seems. And we're going to see a familiar face as this case progresses. Bill worked on his designs, trying different things, figuring out what worked and what didn't work. And he was finally ready to unveil one of his inventions that would revolutionize, firstly, dialysis. In 1975, Bill patented his improvement on the dialysis catheter. It would allow blood to be removed and replaced into the body through a single needle instead of two separate needles, which is the way it had been done in the past. Two years later, he sold his invention to a medical firm, and the money he made from that afforded him the opportunity to leave his job in the medical supplies sales industry to focus on his inventions. Following up on his single-needle dialysis, a few years later, he applied for and was given a patent for an invention similar to the first one. It, too, was a single-needle system used to remove plasma from blood that was going to replace a very awkward and bulky centrifuge process. This was a device that would end up being a tremendous advancement in the field of healthcare. Bill had some business partners that he joined up with, and with these inventions, they earned millions for this item. So he would make his first million by the age of 30 and would become a multimillionaire before he reached the age of 50. And he was pretty much set for life. And at the time the story takes place, Bill's net worth was estimated to be upwards of $55 million. This afforded him and his family, his wife Susan and his three children, to move into a new home on the waterfront of Newport Beach. He also kept vacation residences in Las Vegas, Hawaii, and a ranch property in San Diego. He also became a pilot, and he had his own plane, as well as his own boat. However, in 1994, Bill did find himself at odds with one of his former business partners, Hal Fischel. And for much of that year, he was caught up in a very messy legal battle with him, who was at least partly responsible for the invention of the single-needle device that separated the plasma from the blood. He was suing Bill, and I'm not quite clear on the details of how the partners became divided over the device or the patent, but how Fischl ended up having to relinquish approximately $9 million to Bill. Keep that in mind as our story progresses. Unfortunately, None of this success was enough to keep his marriage together, as his wife Susan would go on to file for divorce in 1990. And from what I understood, the breakup was not an easy one, and Susan just decided that she wanted out of the relationship. And according to Bill's daughters, his world was devastated. He was crushed, and the divorce was finalized within a year. And that's when Bill resorted to looking for something new in his life. In some local publication, he looked up some personals ads and found one that read, quote, Wealthy men only. I know how to take care of my man if he knows how to take care of me. 
this woman would turn out to be Nanette Johnston. And he was just about the same age as his daughters, and they didn't like her very much. They thought it was kind of gross that their father was seeing somebody young, but they understood. After going through such a rough divorce, it kind of gave Bill's self-esteem a bit of a boost having this beautiful young woman around. And she was indeed easy on the eyes. Bill was vulnerable, looking for companionship, and she was able to provide that for him. Johnston was 26 years old at the time, half his age, and in return for her company, he provided Johnston with a very generous allowance. He showered her in jewels, as well as a luxurious lifestyle. He bought her a Mercedes-Benz. She got credit cards to all of her favorite department stores. And before long, she was living in his Newport Beach waterfront home. They traveled the world, having gone to Europe. They went skiing at the best resorts in the world. They went on cruises. It was like going from rags to riches in the blink of an eye. But Nanette also took on the role of being Bill's so-called bookkeeper. So whatever that involved... It meant she knew what was going on with his finances and had access to his accounts. And within a few months' time, Johnston also had her children living in the home with her as well. Prior to this, I believe she was sharing custody. I kind of felt like Dad had the majority of the custody, but I'm not quite sure on that. But either case, all three of them began living in Bill's house shortly after they met. But the more Johnston was wiggling her way into Bill's life, the more and more his adult children were becoming worried. They were telling him that they knew she was with him just for the money. But you know, he did answer that ad and he knew what he was getting into. He isn't the first wealthy man or woman to have become involved with someone younger and his children aren't the first children to dislike it. Dad's going to do what Dad's going to do, I guess. After one year of dating, Bill asked Johnston to marry him, and she accepted. He even had his will changed to add her into it. It was important to Bill that if anything were to happen to him, that Johnston and her children would be taken care of. And he had a $1 million life insurance policy, and Johnston was the benefactor. It seemed for the first time in a really long time, Bill McLaughlin was happy. But on the evening of December 15, 1994, Bill arrived home from a short trip to Las Vegas. He found a post-it note stuck to a lampshade and it was from Johnston. It said that she was going to her kids' soccer game and she was going to be home late. Bill was in the kitchen area of his home, just kind of lounging around, doing whatever. And leading up to this moment, someone was outside Bill's home, watching him. This person entered onto the front area of the property through the pedestrian access gate, which was locked, and one would need a key to open it to gain entry to the outdoor area of the home. Then this person gained entry into the home, and they had a key for this lock as well. This person came inside, turned a corner, 
made their way towards the kitchen and confronted Bill. Face to face with this person in his home, one can only speculate what it was that Bill said or thought or did in the moment. But it wouldn't be a very long moment. The person who entered into his home raised a gun, pointed it at Bill, and shot him six times in the upper torso. The shooter then quickly fled the scene. It would be Bill's ex-wife who broke the news to their daughters that their dad had been murdered. And police early on knew that they had a difficult case on their hands almost immediately. It seems odd to say this, but murder in Newport Beach is rare. But it feels like we're in Newport Beach a lot, aren't we? I mean, not all of our cases are murders, but there was the case I mentioned earlier, Tom and Jackie Hawks, who were killed for their boat, the well-deserved, which they moored in Newport Harbor. There was our torture in the desert episode where those three men kidnapped that unidentified man we called John D. That was a case that originated in Newport as well. And then there were our old friends, Jill and Kent Easter. Remember them? They're seriously like my favorite, stupidest, smart couple ever. The ones who framed PTA mom, Kelly Peters. They lived in Irvine, but Kent's law practice was in Newport Beach. And he made that fake 911 call from there as well at the hotel across the street from his office. And our last case, the bad cop, William Leisure. The yacht stealing scheme. Many of those yachts were stolen from Newport Harbor. So Newport Beach may not see a huge number of crimes, but they do have their fair share of memorable crimes, I have to say. And murder is indeed rare in the area. It's rare in many communities in South Orange County. At the crime scene, there were no foreign fingerprints found that could or would lead to any viable suspects. DNA was in its infancy, and I mean, this was just two months after OJ was acquitted, right? And all that DNA mumbo-jumbo didn't really make sense to anyone who followed the case to begin with. Contamination was rampant. And Orange County investigators weren't exactly experts at this type of forensic evidence collecting yet. So when you're looking at a police department that barely has any murders to deal with, they just aren't going to be that well-versed in fastidious forensic evidence gathering. And besides, there would not be any DNA to be found anyway. They did not find a murder weapon at the scene. So just based on what they had at the crime scene there were not very many clues at all to investigate. But the one thing they did sense early on was this murder had to have been committed by someone who was intimately familiar with Bill's life. And I'll get more into that in a little bit. The night before Bill was shot to death in his home, he had a phone conversation with his brother, Patrick. He would describe this conversation as very concerning. He said he could tell by the tone of Bill's voice that the things that he was saying that something was wrong. Bill had phoned him from Las Vegas. Patrick said that Bill was feeling as though his life was threatened. Just the way that he was talking, it was as if people were out to get him. Now what exactly Bill said in this phone call, Patrick did not elaborate. And knowing what was going to happen the following night, I mean, 
It's natural to want to look back on your last conversations with the person who was killed, to go over it with a fine-toothed comb, to read between the lines, to see if there was something missed, something overlooked, something that you brushed aside, and then to want to point to that conversation as being some sort of foreboding or foreshadowing of what would happen. But what was said is unknown, and it could have either been as concerning as his brother said it was, or it became more alarming after he found out that his brother had actually been murdered. So investigators started looking at people close to Bill. And this is where Hal Fischel's name came up in the investigation. Remember, I had mentioned that Bill had been locked in a bitter legal battle with him over the plasma separator. Because he lost his lawsuit and had to forfeit his claim to $9 million, investigators took a hard look at him as that seemed like a big motive to want to kill somebody. But as they looked at Hal and his whereabouts at the time of the killing, he was definitely not in the area. Several witnesses placed him 150 miles away in Santa Barbara at the time that Bill was killed. Hal Fischel was quickly eliminated as a suspect. Even though they took the time to eliminate Hal, they had the feeling that the killer was somebody who was in Bill's inner circle of friends, or even perhaps family, and that too would not have included Hal. They came to the conclusion early on, it had to be somebody close to home. When investigators arrived at the scene, they made a very interesting and important discovery. There were two house keys there. There was a key in the front door lock that was used to unlock the door to get in. And there was also a second key found lying on the ground next to the outside wall of the home, next to the front door. And that key was the one that opened the pedestrian access gate. With the discovery of these keys, the field of suspects was whittled down to a select few individuals. And that would be people who had access to Bill McLaughlin's house keys. Investigators, of course, had to look to his children first starting with Bill's son, Kevin. He was actually in the home upstairs when the shooting happened, and he would be the one to call 911. Investigators placed bags over Kevin's hands and conducted a forensic analysis, and there was no indication that he had fired a gun or was anywhere near a gun being fired that night. He was quickly eliminated as a suspect, and we will circle back to Kevin a little bit later. They next looked to Bill's two daughters, Kim and Jenny, as well as his ex-wife, Susan, but they all had airtight alibis. Not only that, they really didn't have a motive. They were all on good terms with Bill. No reason at all to want to see him dead. So let's stop for a moment and talk about Nanette Johnston. She was a high school dropout from Chicago also. In November of 1983, she married personal trainer, a guy named Kevin Johnston. He would be the father of her first two children. Things seemed okay on the surface with the marriage at first, but you will come to find that Johnston isn't really wanting to settle for an average guy. She wanted a man with a lot of money, that could afford her a more luxurious lifestyle. 
So she began having a series of extramarital affairs, eventually leading Kevin Johnston to file for divorce. Following her divorce, Johnston moved to Orange County, California. She had the specific goal of seeking out a sugar daddy. There's lots of money in many parts of Orange County. But before Johnston would go on to meet Bill through that personal ad in 1991, she began a relationship with a bouncer named Tom Reynolds. So we're kind of getting an idea of Johnston's taste in men, right? But as Tom was in the process of being duped by Johnston, she was running up huge amounts of debt in his name, all the while placing ads seeking wealthy men. And when she finally found Bill, she dumped Tom and the $90,000 in debt that she racked up. So investigators turned to Nanette Johnston, Bill's fiance. Her alibi was that she was at her kid's soccer game, and after the game, she went shopping, and she was able to produce receipts that she was indeed shopping at the time that Bill was shot, and she really could not have been involved in the actual shooting itself. She wasn't physically there. But when investigators dug a little deeper into her alibi, it didn't completely check out. There was something fishy going on that raised up some red flags. She had told investigators that she was at the soccer game alone. She was actually at the soccer game with another man. And it was someone that Bill's daughters had no idea even existed. Investigators had come back to Kim and Jenny and they were like, Hey, do you know who this Eric Naposky guy is? And they were like, No, we absolutely do not know who Eric Naposky is. Who's that? And investigators told Bill's girls, that's Nanette Johnston's boyfriend. And they were like, really? Because we thought our dad was her boyfriend. Okay, so who is this Eric Naposky person? Well, Eric Naposky was born in Tuckahoe, New York. He played Pop Warner football out of East Chester, New York for eight seasons as a linebacker. In high school, he was a standout, leading his team in sacks and tackles for two straight years. And he was a versatile player as well, also playing in the positions of tight end, safety, and running back, especially when they were in the red zone. He made All-County in 1982 and All-State in 1983, graduating from East Chester High School in 1984. He attended the University of Connecticut on a full scholarship, but things did not go all that smoothly for Naposky at UConn. Halfway through his junior year, he quit the football team over a dispute with his coach. And that's not a great idea if you have aspirations to one day play in the NFL. He would end up withdrawing from UConn, and he lost his scholarship. He did return, though, to finish up his degree in 1987, and left again to pursue a career in the NFL. He would go on to play for the New England Patriots, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Barcelona Dragons. He only ever played five games in total for the Colts and the Patriots. So I read this article in the Hartford Courant 
And it's dated June 20th, 1997. So this is some two and a half years after Bill's murder, right? So keep that in mind. The article was a story all about Eric Deposky and his football career. And they interviewed him as well. And the first line of the article is kind of prophetic. Not only when it comes to his NFL career, but for his life in general and other ways down the road. It said, quote, It's probably all over for Eric Naposki this weekend. No more tackles, no more sacks, no more funnin' and sunnin' on the beach in Spain. With his age and his injury-plagued past working against him, probably no more chances of making it into the NFL. Naposki, a former defensive end at UConn whose professional journey included brief stints with five NFL teams, is an outside linebacker for the Barcelona Dragons of the World League of American Football, his home for four seasons. He will probably have the VCR set to record what is likely going to be his final game on Sunday. And side note, dreamers, I hope that all of you listening know what a VCR is. So, the article goes on. The Dragons, by virtue of their league-leading 4-1 record at the midpoint of the 10-week season, will host the Rain Fire in World Bowl 97. The Dragons, however, went 1-4 in the second half and are 5-5, and and the Fire are 7-3. There will be 26 players in the game who are the property of 18 NFL teams, and Naposki, 30, is not one of them. NFL teams held free agent camps in May and rookie camps this month. Naposki didn't receive any calls and is resigned to the fact that he won't be getting one. So when the six foot three, two hundred and fifty-five pound New York City native takes his number ninety-one jersey off on Sunday, he will return to a Stanford home with a dream unfulfilled. Well, I'm not coming back here, Naboski said from his hotel in Barcelona. I'm going to step aside and let some of the younger guys get a chance. If something happens where I can get into an NFL camp, sure, I'll give it a try. But if not, it's all over for me. Naposki, Barcelona's all-time leader in tackles and sacks, had plenty of opportunities but could only go so far because of injuries. I never really got the chance to prove what I could do at the next level, Naposki said. But I'm not sorry about it. I've had a lot of fun here and the people are great. He is the only player in Barcelona to have a fan club named after him, La Peña Naposki. Dragons coach Jack Bicknell said that he had been so inspired by Naposki, he considers him one of his favorite players. Here's a guy who basically was in the right places at the right times but just couldn't stay healthy, Bicknell said. He is without question a great player. But I think he realizes that he's been around a while and that his time has gone by. I wish him all the luck in the world. Fox analyst Matt Millen had focused on Naposki several times this season. With his size and the way he plays, he could have played in any league. This guy is scary and he will hit you. Naposki's short stay in the NFL started with the Patriots in 1988 two years after he quit the UConn program eight games into his junior season because of a rift with former coach Tom Jackson. Naposki had lost his starting job because of an injury and didn't think it was fair. 
He was also married and had a daughter. And under NCAA rules, he could not work to support them. And for those not familiar with NCAA, it stands for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So Naposky went into the Army Reserves. With the urge to play in the NFL still burning, he joined about 200 other hopefuls at a Patriots Open tryout. Through the supplemental draft, he had a year of college eligibility left, and the Patriots signed him. But in his fifth game, Naposky fractured his ribs, and that also caused a liver injury. And he spent the rest of the season on injured reserve, came back the next year, played in one game, and was released. In 1990, he signed with Dallas as a Plan B free agent, but he was cut before the season. Naposky joined Barcelona in 1991, playing injury-free in 19 of 20 games. He had 19 tackles and 11 sacks in two seasons. Three more chances in the NFL followed with the Jets, the Redskins, and the Seahawks, but ankle and foot injuries prevented him from making it. When the World League suspended operations for financial reasons in 93 and 94, Naposky went to California to start a bodyguard service. Fitness expert Kiana, who has a show on ESPN2, was one of his clients. And Dreamers, I have never heard of such a fitness expert, nor have I ever watched ESPN2, so I have no idea what that was all about. There were no more NFL tryouts. Naposky came back to Barcelona in 1996. One year later, he has a chance for a championship which eluded him throughout his career. That was really my reason for coming back, said Naposky, who was divorced and has two kids by then. I started to think, could Eric come back and finally at least win a title? And Dreamers, you're going to notice that Naposky speaks about himself in the third person, which is kind of annoying, and he does it in a couple of interviews that I watched. I didn't come back to make it to the NFL. That would have been great, but... I wanted a chance to come back and achieve a goal. And that was his interview with the Hartford Current in June of 1997. So it had been a couple of years since Bill's death. And during the time in between Naposky's stints playing professional football, he lived in California for a number of years. The article mentioned that he worked as a bodyguard. He also did some personal training and he also worked as a security guard or a bouncer at a nightclub. And it was sometime in 1992 that Naposky met Johnston at a gym in Irvine, and the couple began seeing one another, doing so all the while behind Bill's back. And those who knew or were friends with or close to Naposky at the time could see that he was pretty smitten with Johnston. His sister Angela met her and thought she was really nice and good for her brother. She met her children, and she enjoyed the fact that they were in her brother's life. They were a couple of really good kids. Johnston and Naposky began to grow close, and Angela, his sister, thought for sure that Naposky had finally found the one because he had never really settled down yet at this point. And those who met Johnston believed that she was a good match for Naposky because she was described as a strong, independent woman who was very smart, and it seemed like a good match for Naposky, 
who I guess did all right for himself. I mean, he earned his degree, but he kind of sort of struck me as a fast talker. And he was sort of one of those gym types that's kind of a meathead. And I listened to a story a long time ago on another podcast, and they thought he was as dumb as a box of rocks, but I don't know. Obviously, I don't know him. So you would have to watch his interviews and judge for yourself. Though throughout this story, it doesn't really seem like the guy makes a lot of bright life choices, but whatever. Naposky had a couple of old high school friends at times that he was roommates with as well. And they eventually got to meet and know Johnston too. And they were surprised that Naposky was actually talking of settling down with her. They knew him to not fall in love very easily. He had been this good-looking and charming guy that had a lot of positive energy and attracted lots of women. But Johnston wasn't like any of the other women that he had dated in the past. Described as a bombshell, very beautiful, turned heads everywhere she went. But she was more than just eye candy. According to Naposky, she was a college graduate, graduating early even, She had her master's in business administration. She wrote business plans for a living. She worked in the medical supplies sales business. She had developed this prototype design that separates plasma from blood. And she took her innovative device that she developed to her boss, a man named Bill McLaughlin. And they ended up selling it, earning them millions. And she's basically a genius and a multimillionaire inventor. And nobody questioned her. Yeah, she stole Bill's story and made it her own. So from the time she met Naposky, this was apparently what he believed Johnston to be. And Bill McLaughlin was her boss, a mentor of sorts. Business and investment partners with Johnston. And according to Naposky, He never suspected that Bill and Johnston were involved in an intimate relationship, much less that they were actually engaged. She told him that they were business partners and that was that, and he believed her and I believe that he believed her. And I do believe she used these lies to have the best of both of them. The rich sugar daddy over here and the younger, rugged, handsome, albeit broke, former NFL player over there. She would go around telling people that she and Bill invested in high-end real estate, that she owned a beach house in Newport, a multi-million dollar waterfront home that she actually shared with Bill, but they had separate bedrooms, and a spattering of vacation properties. So Johnston is all that, right? Beauty, brains, success, a self-made woman. Naposky feels like he won the relationship lottery with her. It's been said that this was the life that he had always aspired for himself. His desperation to make his way onto a successful championship NFL team that he was never really able to see come to fruition, not for lack of trying or ability, but he just could not stay uninjured long enough for any given amount of time. He would have had to have found another direction to go in life, and that's when he headed to California for a while to start a security business. He also ran some training programs for kids at a local gym. And then there was a job at the nightclub. A nightclub that was only 130 yards away from Bill McLaughlin's beach house. 
two weeks before Bill was murdered at the beginning of December, Noposki was hired to work as head of security at the Thunderbird nightclub in Newport Beach, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Bill's house, which places him suspiciously close to the scene of the crime. But he would claim, of course, that he had nothing to do with Bill's murder. Even though he was in close proximity to it, it wasn't him. When asked how he heard about Bill's murder, he would say it was Nanette Johnston who told him about it. And when she did, he described her as pretty shaken up about it. I remember watching a TV show about this on the case. And I remember the investigators who were at the scene the night of Bill's murder, after Bill's son Kevin had dialed 911, that sometime a little while later, Johnston had pulled up to the house, having come home from shopping. She told investigators that she was doing Christmas shopping at South Coast Plaza in Costa Mesa, which, if anyone listening has ever been there, it's a very, very high-end mall with all the fancy stores. So, yeah, I don't really go there all that much, like, ever. But, well, she pulled up to the house, having come from that mall. An investigator said that for quite some time, she just sat there in her vehicle, stoically, kind of just staring. That struck them in the moment. And I think it would have struck me too. I mean, so you pull up to your home that you share with your fiancé, and the place is surrounded by emergency vehicles, police cruisers, crime scene investigators, yellow crime scene tape. I don't know if I would be panicked, but I would definitely be in a hurry to get out of my car and start asking questions. But she didn't do that. She just sat there. What was she thinking? Contemplating something? Processing what she's seeing? Or does she know what she's seeing? And she's just got to get her game face on. I have no idea. But investigators got the vibe that she wasn't exactly shocked to come home to this. Because, they speculated, she knew what was going on inside without having to be told or without having to ask any questions. Within a week of Bill's murder, Naposki had risen to the top of investigators' short list of suspects. They discovered Naposki had an outstanding traffic warrant, so on December 23, 1994, at 2.15 in the morning, he was pulled up and taken into custody. He asked the first question when he arrived in the interrogation room. Am I in trouble for something? The detectives answered, I hope not. And they started off asking him about his relationship with Nanette Johnston. I've already told you that according to Naposki's friends and family, they all knew Johnston to be his girlfriend, even describing her as the one, that he was in love and he wanted to marry her. But when detectives asked, Naposki was not forthcoming. He said, quote, Nanette is a very good friend of mine, unquote. They asked for more details, if he would describe it as a dating relationship or if they were boyfriend-girlfriend. Naposki really wasn't giving them a straight answer, and he danced around the questions, stating, quote, Yeah, well, I wouldn't say solo, total, like, I have girlfriends, you know? When asked about this later on, why he wasn't more candid about his answers, if he didn't have anything to hide, I mean, why not just tell him the truth? Naposki would explain that there is no handbook, there's no manual when you're being looked at in a murder case. 
And I say, that sounds like a pretty good rehearsed answer if I ever heard one. You know, going on explaining your actions from years prior. And I can hardly think of a police interrogation where someone was found to be innocent later on and sat there in an interrogation and lied through their teeth to police. Innocent people might be evasive, they might be vague, they might not even want to answer questions. But if someone is seriously being accused of the most serious crime of murder, the only real motive to lie is most likely to cover up guilt, knowledge, or involvement. But Naposky would explain his lies as a reasonable reaction as somebody possibly being accused of murder. Naposky was evasive with police about several other important details of the case and what he may know or not know about Bill's murder. Investigators who already knew that there was a record of Naposky having purchased recently a 9mm gun asked him about it because, lo and behold, Bill was shot with a 9mm gun. At first, he would not admit to ever owning a 9mm, but he eventually had to because they had the proof that he purchased one and had it registered to himself. They asked him where the gun was. His answer? I have no idea. And the detective said, You have no idea? And Aposky said, That's my statement, and I really don't want to talk about it anymore. When he was asked about this later on, why he didn't tell the truth about the gun, he explained that he was scared, that he did purchase it, but he didn't buy it for himself, that he bought it for Johnston. He was afraid to tell police that it was her gun because he didn't want to prompt them to begin looking at her. He said that he didn't want to point any fingers at anyone. According to Naposky, some years later, he explained that Johnston enjoyed going to the firing range for target practice. And a few months before the shooting, she asked Naposky if he would purchase a 9mm gun for her. But that wasn't his story at the time that he was first being questioned following Bill's murder, because he says he just wasn't sure what to think or what to believe when it came to Johnston. As apparently, it was detectives who broke the news to him. Bill McLaughlin was Nanette Johnston's fiance. So detectives are telling him, this is going on behind your back, but Johnston over here is telling him that's not true. There is no such relationship. And I do believe that when investigators told him Bill and Johnston were engaged, that it was a complete shock to Naposky. And I can only imagine what was going through his mind when he heard this, because I truly think he had no idea. And that Nanette Johnston, with her conniving and manipulative ways, totally pulled the wool over his eyes. And from that day forward, he would proclaim his innocence. Like I told you, referring to himself in the third person, I guarantee you, looking you straight in the face, Eric Naposky did not murder Bill McLaughlin any way you slice it. During his interrogation, investigators asked if they could search his truck, to which he consented, telling them that he wasn't worried about it, they could look through his truck. And the detectives were pretty upfront with him and straightforward. They're investigating a murder, so they began the search of his car. And inside, they discovered a date book or a planner. And in one of the pages, there was a handwritten note that is the license plate number of a vehicle. And when they ran this plate number, 
they found it registered to none other than Bill McLaughlin. And I will come back to this detail a little bit later as well. Investigators were also interested in the house keys found at the scene. Now, I read one report that said one key was for the pedestrian gate and the other was for the front door. And I read that one key opened both the gate and the door. But what seems to make the most sense is that one key was for the gate and one was for the door. And these keys that were found discarded at the scene, it was obvious that one of them had been newly cut, at least one of them. So it would appear that whoever entered Bill's home was given a fresh set of keys in order to get in. So investigators went to a variety of locksmiths in the surrounding area, and they were able to trace the keys back to a shop in Tustin, which is the very city in which Naposky himself resides. And when they questioned the shopkeeper, he clearly remembered that it was Eric Naposky who came in and had that duplicate set of keys made. And that, I believe, because if you take one look at Eric Naposky, he is kind of distinctive and memorable. He is a huge man, weighing as much as 250 pounds or 113 kilograms. And at the same time, when investigators took a look at Nanette's keys, she was missing one of her keys, the one that opened the pedestrian gate. And she had no explanation as to where that key went. According to Naposky, he has the rock-solidest, airtightest alibi ever. There is no way, no how, completely, totally, absolutely impossible that he was in Bill McLaughlin's home just after 9 p.m. on Thursday, December 15, 1994, and he has hard evidence proof that he could not have done the shooting. And this is how he says his evening unfolded. He was at that soccer game earlier in the late afternoon with Johnston to watch her kid play. It was in Diamond Bar, California, north of Newport Beach. The game had actually gone into two extra time periods, so the game ended later than it should have. Afterwards, Johnston drove Naposky home, where he lived in Tustin, California, which is about 11 miles northeast of Newport Beach. And it is important to note that the majority of that distance can be driven by freeway. So the approximate drive time is about 15 minutes, give or take. And right now, as I'm writing this, there's heavy traffic in the area and MAPS is telling me the drive is going to take 17 minutes. So Johnston dropped him off where his truck was parked at his place. And he got in and headed towards his new job that he got just two weeks earlier at the Thunderbird nightclub. And just as he was about to get on the 55 freeway, which would have taken him straight into Newport, he received a page. And some of us may remember pagers back in the early 90s. Yeah, those were pretty cool back then, right? So Naposky claims he got this page, and it was from his new boss, the manager of the Thunderbird. So he bypassed the freeway entrance and pulled into a Denny's. He went inside where they had a couple of payphones back towards the back of the restaurant near the restrooms, and he used a calling card to pay for the call that he made from the payphone to his boss. He would say when later looking at his calling card bill that it was 8.52 p.m. And according to Naposky, this placed him 20 minutes outside of Newport Beach just minutes before the 911 call was made. Now I want to be clear. 
These things Naposky would be claiming are not unreasonable, but they are slight exaggerations, and they are exaggerations that are bent in his favor. Of course, because we are indeed looking at a very tight window of time here, where minutes could make the difference between innocence and guilt. And I thought about this scenario for a long time, and you almost have to forget the driving aspect of it because there are so many variables that you can't ever know or recreate. Naposky claims that he was at a phone booth in Tustin at 8.52 p.m. The 911 call came in at exactly and coincidentally at 9.11 p.m. That's 19 minutes. I just estimated the drive to be about 15 minutes by freeway, give or take. It's a pretty straight shot there. Right now, on a Sunday afternoon, MAPS is telling me that there's heavy traffic and the estimated travel time is 17 minutes. That's still a tight squeeze for the 19 minutes between Naposky's supposed phone call from Denny's and Kevin's 911 call from home. But what if traffic was light on that Thursday night? It was close to 9 p.m. Traffic isn't very heavy that time of night, and people do drive fast on the freeways when there's little traffic. I regularly go about 70 miles per hour or 112 kilometers per hour on the freeway at night, and I can tell that that's generally on the slow side of the way cars speed past me in the fast lanes. So, I do believe Naposky could have driven from Denny's to Newport Beach. He could have been speeding too because he would later on say that he was paged by his work because he was late. So, could he have parked his car? Could he have jogged to Bill's? Entered into his home? Shot him? And then jogged back to the Thunderbird? Yeah, and because they are on the water, he could have ditched the gun too. All of this is speculation, of course, but that's the theory of Naposky's involvement in this. It was only a three-minute walk from Bill's house to the Thunderbird. And when investigators made that insinuation, Naposky said to them in his interrogation, Oh, so it makes it real easy for me to just go. I mean, do you guys think I'm an effing idiot? Would I do something like that? Walk across the street to work? I mean, come on, man. Give me a break. So, kind of arrogant, right? Then, if you want to question whether or not he even made this phone call from the Denny's, that too can shift the narrative. He said he was paged by the manager, who was wondering where he was because he was running late. Now, he could have been running late because of the soccer game, or he could have been running late because he was busy killing Bill. But the records of that phone call, the records of the supposed calling card, would never be found. Even if his alibi was able to hold water, there were those who could argue it would be impossible to make that drive to do the killing in a small amount of time if Naposky was intestine at 8.52. Then it would be a strong case for his innocence. And it seemed as though investigators really could not make their accusations stick anyway as they would be unable to file charges to place Naposky under arrest for quite some time. And that's Naposky's biggest argument in his favor. If they had the evidence, 
if they could prove that he could make that drive in that short amount of time, they would have arrested him immediately. But detectives couldn't do it because it's not possible. They had no case against him, so Eric Naposky would end up walking out of the Newport Beach Police Department, free to go, for now. That same day that they spoke to Naposky, they spoke to Johnston. They wanted to question her further about her involvement with Naposky and the possibility that she is knowing more than she's letting on. And they reminded her that if they find out that she's implicated in the plot to murder Bill, if she's expecting some sort of life insurance settlement, which I'm sure she was, she came across the detectives as pretty self-assured too. They're not going to find her implicated in anything because she's not. Detectives told her that they don't want to tear her away from her kids, but they would have not a problem doing so if they found out that she was hiding anything or covering up for Naposky because they know that she's into him and they know that she's in love with him and that she wants to be with him and they will come after her as well. And her answer, I'm sure you will. I expect you to, but you won't because I didn't do anything. Arrogant too, right? And just how arrogant are these two? Well, shortly after Bill's murder, Eric Naposky moved in to Bill's house. In January of the next year, 1995, a month after Bill's murder, Kim McLaughlin, one of Bill's daughters, was looking at her dad's bank statements, and she was surprised to find about $25,000 missing from her father's accounts. There was a check written to Nanette Johnston Trust in the amount of $250,000, dated December 14, 1994, one day before Bill was shot to death. And the signature was forged. As both of Bill's daughters began to dig deeper, they came to discover in total that Johnston had embezzled nearly half a million dollars from their dad, all checks written to her with his signature forged. She was acting as his bookkeeper, so it isn't hard to believe that he may not have noticed right away because she was handling things, and he trusted her. So it had me wondering, did he or was he about to uncover this deception? And Johnston needed to do something before he did. Bill's daughters believed that their dad was on the verge of finding out and that Johnston needed him dead before he discovered that she was stealing from him and she was doing so in order to build a future with Naposky. Bill's daughters immediately contacted police with their discovery. Detectives believe wholeheartedly that Naposky and Johnston were up to their eyeballs in this murder. But when they brought what they had to the district attorney, he refused to file charges. There simply wasn't enough evidence that they had committed the murder. Remember, dreamers, there are mountains of circumstantial evidence, but nothing, absolutely nothing in the way of forensics or physical evidence. The DA did, however, file charges against Johnston for the forgery and theft, and she continued to spin her stories for Naposky, explaining to him that it was all a misunderstanding, that she and Bill were business partners and they had joint accounts, and that money was all hers and it was his daughters who were going after her because they wanted the money. But then, as news of Johnston's arrest in connection with these fraud and theft charges involving the murdered millionaire, 
The local newspapers were referring to Johnston as Bill's fiance. And finally, Naposky pulls his head out of the sand and is like, whoa, what's all this fiance stuff about? Nanette Johnston again tried to lie her way out of it with Naposky. That this was the media making a mistake, that she was misquoted, I'm not engaged to Bill, I've never been engaged to that guy, that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And when he really began demanding some explanations as to the truth, she would never fully explain herself to Naposky. And eventually this rift would lead to the end of their relationship some months down the road. And he would eventually leave Southern California and made his way back to his hometown in Connecticut. In March of 1996, a year and change after Bill's death, Johnston pled guilty to the forgery and theft charges and served six months in jail. And when she got out, she was right back out there on the market looking for a new rich man to take care of her again. And in short order, she married a very wealthy businessman named John Packard. And this is where she became Nanette Packard. And with him, she would have a child. Detectives would describe her as a manhunter who used her feminine wiles to attract wealthy men and use them. And I would say that this is a fairly astute description of Johnston. So her marriage to John, surprise, surprise, didn't last, ending in divorce seven years later, but she wised up this time and locked in that child support to the tune of $17,000 a month to guarantee that she would continue to get something out of him when their marriage would come to its inevitable end. And again, in short order, Johnston Packard got married yet again to another wealthy businessman named Bill McNeil, I guess now becoming Nanette McNeil, and she had a child with him as well. So we're starting to see a pattern here again with this lady. Naposky too had moved on. He would end up getting married to a school teacher, and together they had two children. And like I said earlier, he never made it to the big time in the NFL, though he did work as a personal trainer and promoted fitness products and merchandise. He even tried dabbling in some acting and reality TV, which took him back to California, but that was only for a short period of time, as things didn't pan out for him with that either. So by 2009, a little more than 14 years after Bill's murder, Naposky's got the wife, the kids, the steady work. He's finally set down some roots in the quiet area of Greenwich, Connecticut. Bill McLaughlin's life and murder had become a distant memory for both Johnston and Naposky. But not so much for the Newport Beach detectives. Granted, the case went dormant for more than a decade. That is until 2007, when a detective assigned to some cold cases pulled the old McLaughlin file and reopened the investigation into the unsolved case. This detective went through every single piece of evidence, taking his time. He laid out this case for the district attorney, and they came to the conclusion that there was enough evidence to go ahead and file charges against both Eric Naposky and Nanette Johnston. So then, on the morning of May 20th, 2009, Naposky's whole new life, the new world that he had built for himself, came crashing down. As he was driving at approximately 8.30 in the morning, headed to work, he was pulled over 
by at least four police vehicles. They asked him to get out of the car and they ordered him down onto the ground and handcuffed him and placed him under arrest. He asked them what he was being arrested for and they told him, murder. And of course, 3,000 miles away from Greenwich back in Southern California, still being the realest real housewife of Orange County ever, Nanette Johnston Packard McNeil was being arrested too. Yep, for the same murder. Johnston never spoke openly to the media. There was one short clip of her sitting in the back of a police cruiser handcuffed and the media is asking her, are you guilty? Did you do this? And she said, I'm innocent. And that's all she ever said. I did see a clip of her being questioned just after the murder. And at the time, she sounded kind of browbeaten, sort of subdued. She had a very flat affect for someone who just lost their fiance. But that is the only sounds of her voice that I'd ever heard. Noposki, on the other hand, would speak to anybody who would listen. And boy, he sure can play up to a camera when it's rolling. I don't know. He's just a little bit over the top with the theatrics, talking about himself in the third person, the abbreviated, long, thoughtful stares into the cameras. He's overdoing it to the point where it looks like he's auditioning for a soap opera. And he would say, quote, It's hard to get a fair trial 15 years later. Am I innocent? Absolutely 100%. Can I prove it? I hope so. Can they prove I'm guilty? I don't think that's possible because I didn't do it. If we ever wanted to see a defendant allegedly being wrongly accused of murder, standing on the mountaintops, screaming proclamations of innocence, you will find no shortage of Eric Naposky there. He did not do this. He was not there. He'd never been in Bill's house. There's no DNA. There's no fingerprints. There's no big size 14 shoe prints. There is nothing placing him at that scene in that house. Therefore, he did not do this. It's impossible. The prosecutor in this case, again, is our old friend, Matt Murphy. He showed up in our most recent Patreon bonus on Daniel Wozniak. He prosecuted that one. He prosecuted Skylar DeLeon, who was convicted of killing Tom and Jackie Hawks in episode 14. And both of those men are sitting on California's death row. So yeah, Prosecutor Murphy is on this case too. And just as certain as Naposky would proclaim his innocence, Murphy would say there is absolutely zero doubt, 100% certainty that Naposky is the one that pulled the trigger and pumped six bullets into Bill McLaughlin. And he was given the tall task to do what prosecutors couldn't do back in 1994, prove that Naposky was the murderer and that Johnston talked him into doing it. It was crystal clear for the prosecutor. Nanette Johnston is a master manipulator. I mean, okay, to attract wealthy men, to use them for their money in exchange for her being with them? Okay, yeah, it all depends, as that would be unfair to label Johnston a manipulator if their relationship is one of convenience. Those things cut both ways. But what Matt Murphy uncovered is one big, huge lie Johnston told Naposky that the prosecutor would say would push the first domino to fall in the murder plot that led to Bill's killing. 
Months before Bill was shot, Johnston told Naposky that Bill McLaughlin was sexually assaulting her. And the only reason for Johnston to want to push this false narrative would be to enrage Naposky to the point that he would want to go over and kill Bill over it. And that's exactly what happened. It was a lie told by Johnston to manipulate Naposky to get him to murder Bill so they could make off with his money. And so, finally, on Monday, June 11, 2011, 16 and a half years after Bill was gunned down in his home, Eric Naposky would stand trial for his murder. And this was the case that Prosecutor Murphy would lay out before the jury. At approximately 7 p.m. on the evening of Thursday, December 15, 1994, Bill had just arrived home shortly beforehand and had dinner with his son Kevin. I mentioned that Kevin was in the home at the time of the killing, but here's the thing about him. He was living at home with Bill because he had been involved in a drunk driving accident that left him with severe brain damage, and he was physically disabled and he had a great deal of trouble communicating verbally. I saw one TV show describe the accident as him having been struck by a drunk driver while he was riding his skateboard. But when I reviewed some of the court documents on the case, it said that he had attended his regular Alcoholics Anonymous meeting as he did every Thursday. So it leads me to believe that it was Bill's son that was the person drinking and having caused the accident. And it's a small detail that I'm sure the family didn't really want presented on television. I think it was on 48 Hours, but it was a detail that was divulged in court. So I'm thinking that Bill had taken his son to the AA meeting and then they returned home and then they had dinner together. And then Kevin went upstairs to his room. And while Bill lounged around in the kitchen area, it was sometime shortly after 9 p.m. that six shots were fired into Bill's upper torso he fell onto the kitchen floor and died. Someone had let themselves into the house, approached Bill, taking him by surprise, and killed him. Kevin, upstairs at the time, heard the shots and would make that 911 call at 9.11 p.m. The phone call is very difficult to understand because of the condition he was left following that debilitating accident, but he was attempting to tell the operator that he needed help, that his dad was shot. The prosecutor told the court all about Nanette Johnston, how she met Bill through the personals, specifically looking for a wealthy man. He showered her with a life of luxury and money, and he made her the beneficiary of a $1 million life insurance policy, and at some point she was even his power of attorney. He wrote her and her children into his will as well, and he made her the trustee of a trust with the majority of his assets. She would receive $150,000 upon his death, his Mercedes, and the use of his beach house for one year following his death. She also had the authority to write checks on his account for up to $1,500 or less for household expenses. But Johnston would end up meeting and falling in love with Naposky, and together the two of them conspired to murder Bill and use his money to finance their future life together. And this is evident due to two hard facts. One is, in the few months prior to Bill's death, a real estate agent reported that he was showing Johnston and Naposky multi-million dollar homes, 
as they were in the market to purchase one, despite the fact that neither one of them had any kind of money. They told the real estate agent that they were looking to buy a home in the spring of 1995, and it was around this time that records indicated that Naposky purchased a 9mm Beretta 92F handgun. And the second piece of hard evidence, after the murder, the Newport Beach Police Department received an anonymous tip from a man and his fiance who knew and worked out regularly with Johnston and Naposky. This anonymous person told police that he knew Johnston was having an affair, that he saw them together on a regular basis working out, holding hands, and kissing. And there was an occasion when Johnston expressed interest in investing in a software program that he was developing, and he even had a meeting with her in October of 1994, and she was interested in investing, but her money was offshore, and it would take some time for her to obtain the necessary funds to invest. It would not be until 14 years later, after detectives reopened the investigation, that they would discover who it was that made this tip. It was a man named Robert Cottrell, and he was called to testify as to the information that he had anonymously provided all those years earlier. Sometime in 1994 is when Johnson began surreptitiously withdrawing money from Bill's checking account that he set aside for her household expenses. And one of the ways that she was doing so was forging checks to herself and signing Bill's name. When she started doing so, the amounts of money were insignificant enough for Bill to perhaps not take notice right away. But the frequencies of the forgeries and the amounts in which she wrote the checks began to increase, and during the week leading up to Bill's murder, Johnston had forged his names on checks totaling $365,000, and this included the check the day before he died while he was in Las Vegas, for $250,000. Johnston was depositing these checks into an account that she had opened under a new business that she had made up called the Nevada Corporation. The prosecution would call Bill's accountant to the stand and testify that it was likely that Bill was going to notice the missing monies very soon if he had not been killed. And the idea was that he was killed in order for him to not find out. The prosecution pointed out the keys that were given to the killer, that they must have been given to him by someone who had access to the house keys, and the range of people quickly narrowed down to Johnston, and she was missing one of her copies of the keys too. And the locksmith identified Naposky as the man who he made the keys for. And then came the prosecution's star witness. While Naposky was living in Tustin, he had a neighbor named Suzanne Kogar, she had actually contacted police early in 1995 as she had some information to give about her neighbor, but for some reason she was asked to call back later to make arrangements to give a formal statement and she kind of got cold feet and never called back. And this, I feel, was a huge mistake on the part of Newport Beach detectives. They should have been at her place or brought her into the station right away to give her statement because she had some pretty damning things to say about Eric Naposky that would have really nailed him at the time. She did call again three years later in 1998, and she gave the information that she had had, but she only identified herself by her first name. And again, her information slipped through the cracks. When the investigation into Bill's murder was reopened more than 10 years later, an investigator for the DA's office tracked Suzanne down and in 2009, she agreed to finally give her formal statement to the police. 
At the trial, she testified that she regularly saw Johnston with Naposky at their apartment complex swimming pool. And just before Thanksgiving, Naposky told her that he was upset with a guy named Bill because he was coming into Johnston's room at night, making unwanted advances and sexually assaulting her, and it was upsetting Naposky. Suzanne described him as furious, so much so that he said he wanted to blow up Bill's plane. Naposky would counter this by explaining that he was upset. He genuinely thought that Bill was assaulting Johnston, and he did say that he wanted to blow up his plane, but he didn't say that he wanted to kill Bill or to shoot Bill or to want Bill blown away. And Naposky would challenge you with this. Did Bill's plane blow up? No, it didn't. So obviously, Eric Naposky was joking because if he was serious, then Bill's plane would have blown up, right? Right. Nah, that didn't happen. Bill just got six bullets pumped into his body. That's all. And then, about three weeks later after Bill's murder, Suzanne had another conversation with Naposky where he implicated himself even more so. She suspected something was up with him and she told him, oh my God, Eric, I don't even want to know if you had anything to do with this. And his response to her statement was a smile. And he said, maybe I did it. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I had someone else do it. Naposky would explain this by saying that he told Suzanne that he didn't do it. But he claimed that she kept hounding him about the murder and that it kind of turned into a joke. And he did say, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but it was a harmless, off-the-cuff comment. And to that, I would ask, do people really off-the-cuff joke about murdering someone? I mean, haha, I murdered this guy the other day, isn't that so funny? But if we're seriously investigated for murder, I don't think we'd be joking around, but okay. This guy, Naposky, kind of seems to strike me as the type of person who makes poor life choices to begin with. He did also make one damning statement that proved to prosecutors that he was the one who pulled the trigger and nobody else. He told Suzanne that the killer used a caliber of gun that he used to have, so police think that he did it. And she also said that he told her that they would never find the weapon because he gave it away to a friend. But police were pretty tight-lipped about the weapon caliber. The only people who knew that a 9mm was used were about six Newport Beach police detectives and the killer. There was no way Naposky could have known that unless he did the killing. And what's more, by the time this case went to trial, investigators had new forensic testing available that was able to prove that the shell casings left behind at the scene could only have come from the exact make and model of the gun that Naposky had purchased all those years earlier. The gun ballistics were unique to that weapon and that weapon alone. And as for Naposky's alibi, that he was in Tustin just minutes before the shooting, and therefore it could not have been him down there in Newport Beach, the prosecution scoffs at the notion, for one, doubting that there was even a phone call to begin with. Naposky said he no longer has the records of his phone bill or of his calling card. But according to the prosecutor, even if that call did exist at the time that Naposky said it was made, then, well, it actually kind of fits perfectly into the timeline. Prosecutor Murphy sent one of his investigators on the case to time the drive, 
and he made that drive from Denny's to Bill's house at least 15 times, and he was able to make the drive in the allotted time frame. So alibi, it is not, but rather proof that it was indeed possible, even on the terms of Naposky's own admission. But the defense team said that they made the drive and it's impossible. But for me, it's kind of a moot point because the phone call can't be proven anyway. No matter which way you look at it, Naposky was headed to Newport Beach to go to work by his own admission. And he was late, again by his own admission. And his workplace is only a three-minute walk from Bill's house. As I see it, the case doesn't turn on that phone call, nor does it turn on the time in which it took him to drive from Tustin to Newport Beach, because we just don't know if the call ever existed at all. And on the day of the killing, Johnston was out shopping most of the day. She told investigators that she spent the day shopping prior to the soccer game and she spent the evening shopping after the soccer game. And one of those purchases during the day was a $429 pair of alligator skin boots. In the small talk conversation with the salesperson at the shoe store, Johnston told her that the boots were for her boyfriend and that he was an NFL football player. Now, as for the soccer game, that game was a championship one that her son was playing in. And because it went into extra time, they were there longer than they expected to be. Johnston was there with Naposky, and her son's father, her ex-husband, was there as well. Because the game ran long, at 8.20 p.m., Johnston told her husband that they couldn't stay for the award ceremony because Naposky had an appointment. Johnston also told her ex-husband that she needed to cancel her visitation with the children for that upcoming weekend. This day was a Thursday, and it was Johnston's weekend with the children, but told him that she could not do the visitation that weekend. Her ex-husband testified that Johnston and Naposky were seemingly in a big hurry as they literally sprinted to their car and took off from the soccer game. When Johnston was later questioned about where she went after the soccer game, she did not tell investigators that she was with Naposky. And what's more, she told them that she left the game alone and went shopping and was able to produce a receipt that she made a purchase at 9.29 p.m. at South Coast Plaza. The next day, she called up her ex-husband and said, you don't need to tell police anything about that Eric Naposky guy because he's not involved but they quickly learned of Naposky's existence in her life. And by the end of January 1995 is when she finally admitted to them that he was at the soccer game with her. And despite the fact that investigators interviewed Johnston's ex-husband twice after Bill's murder, they didn't find out about the phone call that she had made to him, asking him not to say anything about Naposky until 2010 when the case was being reinvestigated. And then the next thing that happened that night is Kevin McLaughlin's 911 call to report that his father had been shot. For investigators, Kevin was able to describe the manner in which the shots were fired. His dad was shot six times. He heard a pattern of two shots fired and a pause, two more shots fired and a pause, and two more final shots, a total of six. And the prosecution presented evidence that when Naposky got into the security business, the place where he was trained taught this type of technique in shooting. 
After the murder, the forensics report on the bullets that killed Bill was prepared back then in 1995 and identified 28 different possible firearms that could have been used in the murder. However, 15 years later, in December of 2010, when the case was being reopened and reinvestigated, new forensic techniques were used to examine the bullets, and the results were cross-referenced with an FBI database on rifling characteristics, and it was concluded that the only weapon that could have made those rifling marks was the Beretta F-Series handgun. The ballistics expert testified that the gun used to kill Bill McLaughlin had to be a Beretta 92F series, and that is the exact weapon that was purchased by and registered to none other than Eric Naposky. Police discovered one key in the front of Bill's house and the second key on the ground outside by the front door. The key that was in the door was similar to a key that the locksmith had sold to Naposky. The other key was for the pedestrian gate. Police would later discover that Johnston had her key to the front door of Bill's house, but did not have her key to the pedestrian gate and gave no explanation as to where it was. I wondered why Johnston didn't give Naposky both keys to make copies of. I wondered if she forgot to give him both or didn't think about it and then later, at the last minute, just gave him the pedestrian gate key as well and they were just too busy or too lazy to make another copy. I can't think of why they didn't copy both. And I could not find any instance where Naposky or his defense team explained away his purchase of the duplicate key. And what about that license plate, Bill's license plate number, that was written on a notebook in Naposky's car? For prosecutors, it was a piece of evidence that he forgot about and has no valid explanation as to why he had written it down unless he was following Bill or on the lookout for his vehicle to know if he was home or not. But you could probably guess that Naposky has an explanation for that as well. It was a few months prior to the murder, he claims, that he had caught Johnston in a series of lies. Now, I don't believe a lot of things that come out of Naposky's mouth, but that I believe. And so he wanted to have her followed. He phoned up a friend of his named Tob Coulter to do him this favor. According to Naposky, Todd went to Johnston's house. He saw a car parked there and he gave him that plate number. As it turns out, it was Bill's car. But Prosecutor Murphy would say this is just more of Naposky's lies. They called Todd Coulter and he had no clue what the hell they were talking about. Naposky never called him. He never asked him to follow Johnston. This was just not a thing that ever occurred. Naposky's attorneys don't care, though, no matter what anyone says. No DNA, no fingerprints, no footprints. No crime can be tied to their client. But Naposky's statements were full of inconsistencies, lies, and evasiveness from the beginning. Along with the license plate number written in his day planner, they also found the word propose written on January 1st. And they found a receipt for a $600 watch that he had purchased for Johnston. So his statements about her not being his solo, like total, like he has other girlfriends statement was untrue. When he was interrogated on December 23rd, nine days after Bill was killed, he said he arrived home between 9 and 915 changed his clothes and headed to work, arriving between 9.30 or 9.45.
but he later changed his statement to work in that telephone call of his alibi, placing himself in Tustin at 8.52 p.m. And as for the gun, he first denied owning any guns, but later acknowledged having recently purchased a Beretta. And then he said he had no idea where the gun was, but later changed that story too by saying that he loaned the gun to a friend named Jimenez and the gun was later stolen, though it was never reported stolen. Well, the district attorney's investigators located Jimenez and learned that Naposky gave him a 38 caliber gun, not a 9mm, but he gave him bullets that were meant for a 9mm. When investigators later confronted Naposky with this inconsistency, he admitted that he lied about the gun and then later claimed that the Beretta was stolen from his vehicle on a night when Jimenez used it for his security job. Four months after Bill was killed, Johnston and Naposky met with an agent about buying a house again. The agent was told by Johnston that she had money coming in from an insurance policy, but didn't have the money to purchase the property at the time. And it was not long after the house shopping that Johnston was arrested for the forgery from not only the check writing, but also signing Bill's name on his vehicle title to put the car in her name. Naposky's defense attorney's whole case was to pin the entire murder on Nanette Johnston. This murder was all her. Start to finish, in his attorney's words, quote, she is an accomplished liar, a cheat, a thief, a manipulator, a con woman, a selfish, promiscuous gold digger. To them, there is more evidence pointing to Johnston as the murderer than their client. They wanted to put her on trial at his trial. She had the motive. She had the means. She's got the cold-bloodedness to do this. She's the sociopath. And what does Prosecutor Murphy have to say about this? He's like, well, you're not wrong. In his words, quote, I cannot agree more with the defense. If diabolical behavior was an Olympic sport, she'd be a gold medalist every year. She's a manipulator and an evil one at that. But Naposky was more than willing to go along with Johnston. They were looking for homes before and after the murders. They long planned to get a place together and get Bill's money to pay for it. To that, Naposky says the theory is absurd, to think that he would kill Bill so he could buy a house. I mean, I'm pretty sure that that was part of their happily ever after plan, but I do think Johnston did manipulate him into killing Bill by telling him that she was being assaulted by Bill. Otherwise, he would have really seen no other reason to kill Bill, as he was under the impression that Johnston was wealthy and all these properties and monies were hers. Naposky's attorneys pleaded their case to the jury, but it was all for naught. They took seven hours to find Eric Naposky guilty of first-degree murder. Johnston went on trial six months later. The defense in her case was simple. Just because she's a crappy person doesn't mean she's a murderer. She's got it made with Bill. He gives her everything. What would be the reason for her to want him dead? Stating, quote, if you're living with the golden goose, you're not going to get rid of him, unquote. And the bottom line is Johnston wouldn't leave her millionaire fiancé for a loser like Naposky. And just as Naposky's attorneys threw Johnston under the bus, her attorneys would do the same to him, painting Naposky as a jealous, violent, brutal killer who wanted to get rid of his girlfriend's lover. 
The jury only took three hours to find her guilty of first-degree murder as well. But this story, my dreamers, is not quite over yet. Sometime after his conviction, Naposky would come forward with yet another claim. In making the case for his innocence, he has since said that he has the information as to who the real killer of Bill McLaughlin is. And it is something that he's always known. And the reason he has never told police is because he did not think that they would believe him. When asked why he would not have come forward with this information from the beginning, why did he choose to sit on it all these years? He said there wasn't any benefit to saying anything because he had no proof. But eight months after his conviction, he claimed that he wanted to speak to the media again, and he would name Bill's killer. And he's known this information for almost 20 years, and he had the proof. According to Naposky, Johnston paid for the killing. She hired a hitman, and he claims to know who it was that she contacted and made these arrangements with. How it all started, he says, was three months before Bill was murdered. He had confided in a friend about Bill having sexually assaulted Johnston, and this friend told Naposky that he has friends that can take care of things like this, you know, that he has people who don't like rapists. But Naposky didn't take what he was saying very seriously because people say that kind of stuff all the time and you just sort of blow it off. Um, maybe it's the company that I keep, but I don't know anyone who has ever said that they know a hit person who could take care of, quote-unquote, that sort of stuff. Anyway, this friend supposedly had Hollywood connections as well, and that's what Naposky says that he was interested in, trying to get into acting and stuff like that, and this friend even got him a part as an extra in a movie. They started talking about putting together a film production company, and Napowski wanted Johnston to write up the business plan, because that's what he thought she did for a living. So Naposki set up the meeting with a friend, with the intentions of introducing Johnston, and that's when this person approached Johnston and made the offer again to help take care of that guy who had assaulted her. And according to Naposki, Johnston was into the idea, but he told her to calm down, this is not a good idea. But when Naposki saw this friend again, he told him that he had already started the ball rolling on the deal with what Johnston wanted done. And Naposki, of course, fearful for Bill's life, I'm sure, did what he could to tell his friend, don't do this, stay out of it, this is not your business. But the friend said that this was what Johnston wanted. Naposki wanted to try to stop this all from happening. So he took Johnston aside to talk to her about it, and she got all mad, and they argued and as far as Naposki was concerned, the whole deal was off. Then a couple of months passed, and then it was in early December. And that's when he noticed that his 9mm Beretta was missing. He claims that he questioned Johnston about the gun, asking her if she took it, but he didn't really elaborate on what her answer was to that. And within days, Bill was dead. And when Naposki, totally stunned and shocked by the killing, asked Johnson, did you have Bill killed? She supposedly coldly said, absolutely, yeah, I did it. He described her as having no remorse about it at all. And then Naposky took it upon himself to confront his friend and be like, 
dude, like, why did you do this killing? I thought we talked about this, but all he told him was it is what it is. And he just did what Johnston wanted done and that there was nothing more that Naposky could say or do about it. And this friend told him that they used his gun to kill Bill. So he would be implicated if he tried to turn anyone in. And that was the threat of possibly being linked to the murder. That's what kept him quiet all of these years. Naposky wanted a meeting with prosecutor Matt Murphy. He had spent months poring over evidence in the case that he claimed that he did not have access to until after his conviction. And the proof, he says, is in Johnston's phone records. In the days leading up to Bill's murder, a phone number appears on her bill. Calls made to Hollywood. This movie producer friend, right? The prosecutor had already been able to determine that both Johnston and Naposky regularly made phone calls from her phone. They shared it, so it would be impossible to tell who made the calls. And they investigated the man Naposky claims carried out the hit, and they found him to be completely legit, on the up and up, never been in trouble with the law, ever. So they aren't believing that this guy suddenly decided that he wanted to become a hit person out of the blue. And not only that, this person Naposky was accusing didn't even know Johnston. Never even met her. Naposky pointed out that Johnston was making cash withdrawals in the days leading up to Bill's murder as well, even on a day that one of the phone calls was made, and that this money was used to pay off this hit person. But... Knowing what we know about Nanette Johnston, she was embezzling money from Bill, putting it into her account, and then writing checks out to herself for cash. And she did this sort of stuff on the regular anyway. It might be unusual if Johnston was a penny pincher and never touched her bank account, and then suddenly, a few days before the killing, a large chunk of money is taken out. But no. Money flowed in and out of her account constantly. The prosecutor would say there is not a word that would escape the lips of Eric Naposky that you could ever trust to be the truth. From the first time police interviewed him in 1994 to the most recent interview some 17 years after the fact, it's been a constant stream of lies and deceit. It was he, and he alone, who walked into Bill McLaughlin's kitchen and murdered him in cold blood, and he did so at the behest of Nanette Johnson. End of story. Today, Eric Naposky is 52 years old. He resides at the Avenal State Prison, which is just about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. He is serving out his sentence of life without parole. Barring any successful appeals, he is going to die in prison. Nanette Johnston, she is actually booked into jail under the name Nanette Packard. She is 53 years old today. She resides at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. And she, too, barring any successful appeals, will also die in prison. And that brings the 75th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I, for one, am fully convinced that Eric Naposky is guilty of killing Bill McLaughlin, despite the lack of forensic evidence tying him to the crime scene. 
Because when we look at all the circumstantial evidence in its totality, it all points to him and only him. The fact remains, Johnston was not physically present at the scene of the crime, but she did seemingly manipulate Naposky into doing the dirty work for her. But Naposky remains defiant and unyielding in his insistence that he did not murder Bill. But for me, no matter how many times he says that he's innocent, I'm not really convinced. He's been proven to be a liar through and through, and he's gotten pretty good at it over the years. So dreamers, tell me what you think. Is Eric Naposky the unluckiest man in the world? Or is he exactly where he deserves to be for ending the life of a man who changed the landscape of the medical world with his innovativeness and his inventions, earning himself a comfortable life, a man who raised his beautiful kids, gave them the best life that he knew how, reached a rough patch in life, a crossroads, and in seeking the companionship of someone who made him feel better about himself, had the misfortune of crossing paths with Nanette Johnston. Tell me what you think on Facebook. If you aren't in the discussion group, request and join. We talk about all of our cases, as well as other current true crime news, stories, other podcasts, TV shows, and documentaries that we like to watch. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I'm very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog. And if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, you can find all of the links at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Again, thank you for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. Hey, this is Steve from Great Lakes True Crime. We tell stories from Ohio and the rest of the lower Great Lakes region. Give us a listen on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime. tired of hearing you talk about serial killers while you're at a dinner party have you randomly blurted out the odds of being murdered by a complete stranger does netflix only recommend documentaries on true crime and murder if you've answered yes to one or more of these questions come over and sit at our friends table i'm cam and i'm jen and we are the co-host of our true crime podcast and you can listen to us every wednesday wherever you download your podcasts see you on wednesday oh bye-bye Love ya.